According to digital media. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Blair. Hi. What are we doing here? (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Oh my God, it's so good. Hi, and welcome to the Nonprofit Podcast. Um, My name is Blair Speed, and if you've listened to the podcast before, you've heard me speak a couple of times. Uh, We are sitting in my home in Montana. And this is a very special day for me. Um, Mark is here, who is the um, classic host with Michael Blevins. Greetings. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, I need my radio voice. Yeah, you need your radio voice. Yeah, okay, now we we can pretend it's late night radio. Perfect. (laughs) And we are sitting here with uh, one of my most dear friends, uh, we're here with Maury Irvin, uh, who's two days shy of his 99th birthday. Um, so is that 98.363? Um, I'm not good at math. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so in two days. So in two days. Maury will be There'll celebrating. There'll be fireworks. No, I hope not. <laughs> I'm saying, Charlotte hopes the same. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Maury, uh, would you mind talking a little bit about how you and I know one another? Oh, well, uh, when I was getting my, when I started school after the war in Bozeman, Montana, I uh, liked it, and I picked up my degree and my wife. And then we went east for 40 years. And then I wanted to come back, and she didn't, because she said every time she did something wrong, her mother knew about it before she got home, and she got punny. Exactly. (laughs) But she agreed to come back. So um, we came back in about 88, and one of the things that I saw in the paper was they were looking for volunteers at the Museum of the Rockies. And I thought, hey, that would be fun. So I went up and applied, and I was accepted. And my first boss was someone known as Blair Speed. (laughs) (laughs) More, you always forget to say strict and intimidating before boss. Uh, yeah, Maury and I met um, at the Museum of the Rockies. Uh, at the time, I was the um, volunteer and education coordinator uh, and was fortunate enough to work there for about seven years and anywhere between 150 and 300 active volunteers at any point uh, for the museum. It's a really incredible place in our community. And Maury and I met, and, and I think that Maury was 87 or 88 when we met, which means I was 24 or 25. <laughs> And for some reason, we met and we became instant best friends, which I'm incredibly grateful for. And I would love to share uh, a part of his life and and a part of the uh, unique and special perspectives uh, that Maury 
uh, brings to each of our lives, uh, just just living the way that he does. Uh, granted, we like to talk a lot on the nonprofit podcast. 99 years is a lot to cover. We're, but this we're, is uh, part one of seven. <laughs> <laughs> but we're endurance we athletes. Exactly. So. <laughs> we, we, we won't necessarily need to go in chronological order. Just, you know, whatever comes. Absolutely. I, the story of the anti-Kithra um, mechanism. mechanism that we spoke about before we started recording is, it's incredible oh, to it's... me. And I, I read the article on the MSU website about you, Maury, today, oh. which describes this as one of the, that on the mantle, there is a, 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 a model of, this or a, pe- a model piece of a piece of, of a piece of it and I, I this um almost took the top of my head off to read that there was an analog computer that is dated to almost 2000 years ago um so my days complete right now <laughs> whatever else we talk about afterwards is and i think this wow. um this particular story really talks and speaks to about Maury's uh, inquisitiveness and, and insatiable curiosity. He learned about this mechanism and then uh, dove very deep into it. Maury, would you mind telling us a little bit about the anti-Tithera mechanism? And, Anti-Kithera? Yeah, anti-Kithera mechanism. Anti-Kithera, yeah. Um, <clears throat> this the same thing that we said earlier? Yep. Okay, but in about 1903, there were some Greek sponge divers uh, in North Africa looking for uh, sponges, and they had the boat full, and they went back to go to their home island near Greece, and a storm came up, and so they went on the lee side of an island. Its actual name is Antikythera, and it's... A neighboring island is Kithera. <laughs> so when the storm was over, the captain thought, well, are there any sponges down there? So one of the crew put on their only diving suit, went down, came bobbing up almost immediately, and he says, there are all tens of bodies over there. And <laughs> so the captain put on the diving suit, went down, and he noticed that there was a boat, a few yards away that had sunk and spilled out its cargo, and its cargo were tens of marble statues and other wonderful things. Wow. So he took an arm from one of the statues and went up, and by law, by Greek law, if you found a salvage ship, you must report it to the government. So they went to the capital, reported it, and they got the contract to bring up all the treasures. So uh, they did over a couple of years. And um, one of the things that was brought up was a ball several feet across with a lot of green stuff sticking out. <laughs> uh, they didn't know what it was, but they thought it would be interesting. Well, after a few months in the warehouse, that ball broke into several pieces, and to everyone's amazement, it were bronze gears. And 
they wow. they had already dated the uh, the cargo and when the ship sunk to a little slightly more than 2,000 years ago. And of course, we all know that bronze gears were unknown at, yeah. at that time. <clears throat> so there was a tremendous interest in this. So for years and years and years, people have been studying this. <clears throat> they finally have found 82 fragments of this device and has established that it was the first analog computer. And what it did is that uh, it was fully operational. It had two dials on one side and one dial on the other. On the one dial, there had a, a calendar, the Egyptian calendar of that time. Okay. And then it had the signs of the zodiac on another disc, and they had a pointer. And you would take the pointer, turn it to a particular day, and that would show you where in the sky the sun was. Another pointer did the same for the moon. They're not sure, but many people believe there were other pointers for the planets, but that's uncertain. And so it was a, a, a mechanism to help navigate for uh, a... People thought that for a long time. In my mind, they've established, no, it was not used for okay. navigation. But it, that was a very strong possibility that was used, thought about a lot. I imagine, <laughs> yeah. On the yeah. other side, uh, two dials, <coughs> and... On the top dial, you pointed, it would tell you the date of the uh, eclipse of the sun, and the other dial, the eclipses of the moon. So this has been wow. quite magnificent. And I love that Maury's interest in this, you know, it's a 2,000-year-old analog computer, and computers have been an important part uh, throughout Maury's life and career. and. I'm going to forget what it is, but, you know, for Maury's 90th birthday, I remember him talking about a quantum computer, or what are they, what is the new computer that they're working on? Uh, it's so, a quantum key computer, and uh, it uses the uncertainty principle. Oh. For example, you're familiar with Schrodinger's cat. 100%. Meow, meow. <laughs> <laughs> so they're doing that. And people are working very, very hard because if they ever get it working, it's going to be just incredibly fast. Yeah. And they are making progress. And uh, right now, they just announced several days ago that some company has just made a step forward into building a quantum computer. It's incredible. Uh, one of the things I've really valued and appreciated about Maury is, um, again, that inquisitiveness and, and welcoming in new technology. Um, he hasn't fought technology. In fact, I don't know if you'll remember this, Maury, but when I was still working the front desk at the at the museum, uh, you taught me how to use my iPad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even uh -huh. talking about my iPad. One of my iPads is in the computer museum. Is it really? How come? 
because um, the, they have a replica of this antikythera mechanism we've been talking about. Yep. And uh, they, I gave them a piece of, uh, a copy of the largest piece, and uh, they also have my iPad there where they were talking about it. Oh, I'm, I'm not quite sure now. It might be over with the computer that models the way the brain works. Incredible. So we'll, we'll get to <laughs> oh it. Um, again, Maury is um, really incredible with technology, and, and he was part of the team at Bell Labs that helped develop the transistorized computer, the first transistorized computer. Um, but before we jump to that, uh, one, of, one of many of my favorite stories of Maury, and, and I hope we get to a couple, um, but I reminded him of it just a few minutes ago, um, would be Maury was born in Butte, Montana. Oh, you weren't? San Francisco. Oh, you were born in San Francisco. Thank you. To two Montana ranchers. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Um, would you tell uh, the, the trolley story in San Francisco as a child? Oh, the trolley? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Uh, I don't remember quite how old we were, but uh, my mother had to go back to Montana when I was eight years old, so I was eight or younger. Another friend of mine had been playing out on the street, and we found some money. And we said, oh, so we went on, we went on the streetcar and uh, put our money there, went to the end of the line, uh, which was the ferry area, got out and found where they were building a building. I think this was a Sunday, so no one was working. So we went and played in the sandbox and had a good day. So after a few hours, we decided we better go home. And then we discovered we had a slight problem. <laughs> that is, we didn't have any money for the trolley. So we said, well, we'll just walk home. And after a few blocks, we were tired, and my mother had always told me, when you need help, go tell the nearest policeman. So I said, let's go tell a policeman. And he says, no, I can't. My mother said, never talk to a policeman. Never give them any information. Uh, and that, of course, as everybody knew, she was a local bootlegger for the area. And so we walked a few more blocks, and then we were so tired, he said, okay, we'll go. And we got a hold of the policemen, and they were already looking for us. <laughs> so we got a free ride home. <laughs> Mark, I was telling that story to Mark uh, just the other night, and we were talking about how, I mean, I personally, I wouldn't have a connection to the American Prohibition uh, directly if I didn't know you and what a gift it is just to have, you know, you in my life and this, um, this moment in American history that I get to know a little bit about or touch because I get to know you. It's not, it's, it's not just a textbook yes. idea <laughs> so, suddenly, you know, yeah. and, um, during, I was, I worked on a job at, uh, some 15 years ago, I guess, um, in Montreal. And it was there that I learned a little bit about prohibition mm -hmm. because it was the northern party city, 
where people could cross the border into Canada, where prohibition did not exist, have a nice time, and then uh, go home. Which it never, I mean, to, to read about prohibition and then to have any sort of physical example of, um, I don't know, authority figures, politicians trying to uh, legislate human nature. (laughs) (laughs) Good way to put it. (laughs) It's rarely worked out for the good, it seems. (laughs) Um, Maury, Mm -hmm. so when you were in San Francisco, uh, that was your exposure to the Navy a little bit? Yes. And then you moved to Montana with your family. Uh, So another one of my... Um, favorite stories that I've learned because of you uh, is your World War II enlistment story. And in particular, what I'm talking about, you know, a couple of years ago, I don't know, it's probably been a while now. Let's just say eight. I'm making that up. Uh, Eight years ago, a fellow docent uh, from the museum, which is a a volunteer at the museum, but docents go through basically a a college semester every year of um, education and training. Uh, to learn about the exhibits and to to learn about um, guiding individuals through those exhibits. And one of the fellow docents asked Maury if if he would do a presentation on World War II uh, to to 80 elementary school students. And and Maury agreed enthusiastically because that's how Maury agrees. But he didn't realize that he would be giving eight different presentations in a row (laughs) to all of the students. Uh, and they wrote in, and, and one of the things that the students wrote in about was what an impactful story it was to hear about Maury's drive uh, to enlist in World War II. And, and he ended up uh, attempting to apply to, to World War II 27 times. Uh, Maury, would you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yes. Well, at birth, my left eye was damaged. And so I'm legally blind in that eye. And so I was uh, just graduated from uh, high school and uh, working for New York Life Insurance Company in Butte when, oh, I should say, I graduated in June of 41 from high school, and we all know what happened. Well, as soon as that happened, I ran down the street to the recruiting station, Naval Recruiting Station, to enlist. And they immediately gave me an eye exam and flunked me. So I would wait a day or two till somebody else was in the station and go down, (laughs) and they would do the same thing. So uh, I, I did that several times. And it became apparent that I wasn't going to be in the Navy. So uh, I uh, went and went to some classes and learned. I was already a radio amateur, so I could go da-da-da-da-da with the best. (laughs) And uh, I passed some federal tests that uh, would give me the right to be a radio operator, for example, in a plane. At that time, uh, you know, there was the, uh, uh, in uh, every airplane 
had a radio operator on board. Da 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 da. So everything was all communication by radio at that time is was, more is Morse code. That's right because they didn't have voice at that time. Yeah. So uh, I uh, applied and um, I wasn't having any luck, and so I applied to several airlines, and. I got accepted by TWA in Wash in uh, Washington D.C. Washington yeah. D.C. and so uh, I hopped on a bus and went out. And the first thing they did was give me an eye exam, and said, "No, you know, we can't. You can't fly. You can't pass the flight exam." But they said, "There's a war on." So in a few months, they're going to drop the requirements, and then you can fly. So stay here and work, uh, servicing the radio, all the electronic equipment aboard ship, aboard the planes. And I did that for nine months in Washington, D.C., and it became clear to me I wasn't going to fly. So they tricked I, you. <laughs> I, uh, That's not nice. <laughs> I learned about the Mercer Marine needing uh, ships, uh, civilian ships, cargo ships that were going in convoys to supply the troops overseas, needed radio operators. So I applied to the Merchant Marine, and uh, they gave me, uh, oh, they said, we can't take you if you can be in the military service. So I had to take another eye exam and be flunked <laughs> and be for rated officially 4F in order to go ahead and get a commission in the Merchant Marine as an ensign in charge of all radio uh, communications aboard ship. And uh, on the top inside deck, of the ship, uh, the captain had his stateroom and office on one side. I had my radio shack and stateroom on the other, and we were the only two people on that deck. I reported directly to the captain. So when we hit port, they took down my antennas. So I had nothing to do. So. I would ask the captain, when are you leaving? He'd tell me. I'd hop off the ship, travel around, come back the day before we sailed. It was a grand adventure. And, and this is sort of why, the, like, where you got this, like, the bug to travel and see as many different yes. places as possible. Because right. courtesy of the... I guess U.S. government yes. and and its corporate partners, exactly, <laughs> um, yeah. to 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 find yourself in different ports in Italy or yep. France. I'm guessing also yeah. in any of the Allied ports. Yeah, no, I uh, got to a lot of the places. It was just like a, a grand vacation. The one drawback is at the end of the war they had the GI Bill, so you could go to college. But the Merchant Marine was not military. Half of the ship was Navy, who fired the guns that we had aboard. But the Merchant Marine was civilian, so we did not get the GI Bill. However, when Eisenhower became president, he passed the bill 
making us veterans. So I am now a veteran. Oh, that's incredible. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, you, I mean, except you, I'm not you, a veteran of the Merchant Marine, I'm a veteran of the Coast Guard, which oh. rides the Merchant Marine. So I have my official military discharge papers. Oh, that's so, wild. It is. You know, Maury, uh, when we've talked about this story before, one of the things I really appreciate is you spoke about, you know, you were really drawn to be in the Navy and, and um, you were born with this disability and not to um, make smaller disabilities or hardships that we face in life. But one thing that I really valued when you communicate this is this thing that uh, could be seen negatively really led to this uh, journey that you couldn't have expected. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And um, there's a couple of stories of, well, there's a couple of stories in the ports, and then I would also like to hear your, when you learned about the, let's see if I can remember it, the um, improbability equation, the, what do you call it, when the bombs were dropping um, on near your ship, uh, when the German aircrafts were dropping bombs, and because, so on the Liberty ship. But they couldn't see the ships because of the smoke screen. Yep. Oh, okay. Uh, What we were, uh, we were... uh, Is it Anzio? Anzio, which is the port for Rome. And uh, we we would take the ship to Naples. And in Naples, uh, we would have to put all our clothing that we weren't wearing in a duffel bag and leave it ashore because so many ships were being sunk, the survivors were running out of Uh, clothing to wear. Oh, that's wild. So uh, we then went up, a few of us, several ships, to Anzio to be unloaded. Now the port city was uh, completely bombed out, so another ship, a small uh, ship, tugboat would come out, and we would unload the cargo there, and it would go in. So uh, we... Uh, so like a, a tender, a smaller yes, right. boat that could... And so after several days, they would have us all unloaded. Um, and uh, one night... Uh, oh, uh, what was happening now is the Germans knew about this. So, uh, but... We all had guns aboard our ship, and the sh- so uh, they couldn't bomb us during the day, or they'd get shot down. So they would come over at night and drop the bombs. But uh, what the Coast Guard did, every night at sunset, they would come out and lay down a smoke screen over the bay, which would rise up to about 100 feet or so. So the entire bay was covered with smoke, so the bombers couldn't see anything to bomb, so they would just go over and drop the bombs, uh, hoping to hit something, and very often did. And one night, I was uh, standing out on deck, on the third deck, and uh, seeing the flashes aboard uh, on the ground uh, where the battle was going on, 
And then all of a sudden in the distance, I saw a splash in the water. Oh boy. And I said, oh, that's a bomb. And then I watched it, another splash, another splash. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me that the next dropping was gonna be right on our ship. And I got overcome with a tremendous degree of sadness. All the things that I wanted to do, I wasn't going to be able to do. I was so sad. And then suddenly I realized I'm still alive. <laughs> that I had seen the splash of the last bomb. And, uh, and the aircraft had, was empty, so. So it just, just went on. It just shows the luck of the draw. It really yeah. does. But it made quite an impression on me. And I got to tell you one more Please. invasion story then. Yeah. So it's getting near the end of the war, and uh, we had the D-Day invasion. All the mm -hmm. troops went north. So the military decides what we will do is we'll go down south to France and then be there, and all the troops are up, German troops are up north, and they'll take a while to come down. So I was on the sh our ship, went over to um, Algiers, okay. and picked up a cargo of French nurses and their <laughs> ambulances, about a dozen French nurses and the ambulances and their drivers for the ambulances. This sounds like a hardship to me. <laughs> <laughs> and so we went back, and then on D-Day in southern France, we went on, and then the port, of course, was destroyed, but one of the tenders is coming out to get a, uh, get, start unloading our cargo, and he comes, and the way they work, they glide and why they're still a hundred or so feet away, turn sideways and coast gently alongside the boat. And this guy comes smashing in and smashes our boat. <laughs> now there wasn't any damage done, but it, it was sort of funny in a way because what had happened as he was ready to turn, he looked up and he saw 10 French nurses <laughs> watching him <laughs> on the bridge. <laughs> and he forgot to turn. <laughs> That's one of my favorites. And he was probably A, distracted, and then B, telling himself in his head, don't mess this up. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't, no, I just <laughs> did, failed to do my job with 10 French nurses as witnesses. <laughs> you know, when, when they would take the antennas down off of the ship, Maury, and you had the chance to uh, explore in these different ports. Uh, another story I really enjoy is when you went to Pompeii um, and there was nobody else there except for you on, on that one day. You went to the um, Forgotten City and went and explored. Um, did you meet Rosa on that? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And um, later at the museum, we had an exhibit, a plantus, um, which was near Pompeii, correct? Yes. Yep. And so, and so, you know, when we would get an exhibit, there's the permanent exhibits at the museum. And then uh, a couple times a year, a different exhibit will come in and it's a traveling exhibit. And 
Whenever there was a new exhibit, Maury would purchase somewhere between 25 to 32 books on the new exhibit uh, and <laughs> study it in depth. And he was really excited about the Aplantis exhibit, one, because of his own personal history and, and having been to Pompeii and, um, and met Rosa's and, and enjoys Rosa's Pizza here in, in Bozeman, Montana. Um, and uh, when Maury was 92, he went back to uh, Italy uh, and he did a trip over there and ended up climbing Mount Vesuvius uh, when he was 92. Uh, and so to see these connections throughout his life and again, how he continues to explore um, throughout his life is just something I really appreciate. And so Pompeii, the 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 ship must have been in the port in Naples. Naples, guess, right. That's right. Which I've only seen in its, well, 2013, I spent some time there. And uh, it's an extraordinary sort of mishmash of the old, obviously, and the modern and as people try to navigate all of this history, I think it's a, um, and much of it just seems to get lost in the, in the busyness of modern life. Mm. I've always really enjoyed hearing Maury's World War II stories. And when I was in college, I studied World War II. It was, it was a history degree, and that's um, mainly the area that I studied. And so then, you know, later on in life, I meet one of my new best friends, and, and he was there during that time. Uh, and all of these stories, and there's there's stories of, didn't you put mattresses to fill holes in ships <laughs> while you were over there? Oh, yes. And um, one time we were talking about it, and you mentioned the hardest message that you ever had to decode. So Maury was a decoder, and, and I don't know, uh, several years ago, it was a really special evening, um, the EO, the Stibbets and E.O. Wilson Awards were happening in Bozeman, which is um, local uh, awards for technology. And, and Maury received one uh, in 97 for the work that he has done. Um, but they were honoring Alan Turing and Joseph Desch's, Desch's um, families uh, for the work that they did breaking the Enigma machine in, mm -hmm. in World War II. And, and Maury had the chance to present while we were there um, because he lived and experienced it. And, and that breaking the Enigma machine, which he didn't know at the time, helped save his life and keep him safe uh, during that time. But, and Maury, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, he talked about one of the most difficult messages that he ever had to decode was after the war was done. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit, Maury? Yes. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, we, as I mentioned before, had a lot of guns aboard ship, and half of the crew was Navy that manned those guns. Well, um, on my last trip was when Hitler had surrendered. So the war was over there, but the emperor in Japan had not, so the war was still on. So uh, we agreed to feed Europe. So we, the ship I was on went down to uh, Buenos Aires. We got an entire load of grain and then uh, came up to uh, uh, Europe. In fact, we went into Bordeaux, France. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when it was unloaded, I 
went over, so I was one of the first Americans into Paris. <laughs> oh. <laughs> this was fun. But then on the way back, now you must remember that uh, the only communication we have is via radio. I received a coded message, and I had code book, and deciphered it, and I felt I didn't see how I could possibly give the captain this message. And what it said was, throw all your ammunition overboard. Oof. Uh, and I, for about an entire day, I worried about this, decoded it several times to make sure I wasn't sure? making yeah. anything, and decided, well, it's my obligation to give the captain. So I gave it to the captain, and he did that. All the ammunition we had was thrown overboard. So when we got to the port in the U.S., first thing I wanted to do was find out what happened. And this is what happened. As all of these cargo ships came into port, they were taking off all their ammunition, because you don't want to carry ammunition on a ship. And they were uh, uh, tearing it apart, saving the metal, and then destroying the powder and everything. Okay. Well, the ships were coming in and dumping it. They were overloaded. They have no place to put any more <laughs> ammunition. Yeah. So they decided the best thing to do is just throw it in the bottom of the ocean. Wow. That's wild. And yeah. some of that, those brass shells that are down there are now covered with green stuff, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> Maury, how did your uh, experience in World War II, and, and especially um, the chance to, to watch the German fighter pilots drop uh, bombs and not hit the boat, impact your life? Well, it made me realize how fortunate I am to continue having fun. Yeah, completely. And you've definitely moved forward in that way. It's it's pretty in incredible to watch Maury walk through life. Um, he went on up. You went to Lehigh uh, University, or you got your undergraduate from MSU, and then you went to Lehigh for physics, and you taught yeah, there for in a Bethlehem, while. Pennsylvania. Yep, and then worked for uh, Bell, Bell, Lab. for Bell Labs. Yep, and with them again, the um, continuing with um, your computer science and computer technology. Uh, that's where you helped uh, the team that invented the transistorized computer. Yes, well, what we did, my very first, when uh, I joined Bell Labs, they said, what did I want to do? And I said, I do not want to do research. I don't want to go in a search lab. I want to build projects. So they assigned me to this group that <coughs> had been assigned the task <coughs> that a special bomber was being built. And it, the computer that we would install on it would, while it's on the, air ground, on the ground at the airport, it would take off under computer control, fly at 6,000 feet over friendly territory, 100 feet over enemy territory, because they wanted to avoid the radar, enemy radar, 
So it had three radar beams, one pointing dead ahead, one down 45 degrees, and one uh, pointing down to the ground. Straight down. And, for example, if one was flying over the going over the English Channel to the White Cliffs of Dover, as soon as you saw that you were getting close to the cliffs, it would automatically take the plane up and over and down. It was called terrain avoidance. And uh, at that time, uh, computers were made only with vacuum tubes. And it took a room full of computers to make a computer. So that clearly we couldn't build. Into an aircraft. So we had to do something else. So in 1947, Bell Labs had invented the transistor, which was minuscule compared to the vacuum tube. So we built the very first transistor computer, and it fit nicely on the plane. It's extraordinary to think about vacuum tubes now, um, which are obsolete, let's yes. say, except in the world of hi-fi audio. <laughs> <laughs> and now people pay yes. an extraordinary amount of money to have an amplifier or pre-amplifier um, for their home sound system, um, which is based solely on vacuum tubes <laughs> because of the... the uh, Warmth, the fidelity and the warmth of Uh the sound versus what, you know, some listeners will say is a more clinical Mm. and bright and harsh (laughs) sound of a a, a transistor-based amplifier or something like that. And uh, I remember, I mean, uh, I'm quite a bit younger, um, but growing up, that when my father would turn on the audio amplifier at home, it'd be like, <laughs> and then it would take a while to warm up before it could actually work. It was <laughs> yes. not instantaneous right. uh, as we are yeah, accustomed to. Filaments yeah. had it yeah. burn brightly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so this um, development with Bell Labs was sort of the, I mean, basically the precursor to modern computer technology. Exactly right, and it just keeps getting better and better. It really does. Maury reminded us we have a, a American and robotic. We have an American Computer and Robotics Museum here in Bozeman, Montana, um, which is really incredible. And Maury reminded us and, and uh, told Mark that he should go. We should go visit it, and not just because Maury's um, spoken about three different times within the museum. Within the museum, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it must to to think of. I'm 61 years old, and. T- uh, I like to think I have witnessed and experienced quite a lot of change in my life, not the least of which is technological. Obviously, 38 years more, it's a lot of... (laughs) To go from a vacuum tube to a modern telephone, it just stops my mind in some way to... Imagine that what is available in this handheld device now was, you know, the entire floor of a building or something 
originally in terms of computing power, which is, it's extraordinary and has many positive benefits, <laughs> but will we be taken over by these robots? <laughs> <laughs> Very possible. I agree. Very possible, because why would it want us around when it is so much smarter? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the day my telephone gets up and starts walking away. <laughs> exactly. It doesn't walk away yet. It leads us to it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it tells you where to carry it. Yeah. So it can be in proximity to yeah, its friends. It gets carried around. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, Maury, how have you navigated the change in technology? Uh, I like to use some of it. Yep. Like... I take my iPhone everywhere. Yep, same. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I just find it incredible yep. the things that we can do now. I agree. I'm just overwhelmed by it. And uh, I have not delved into the most recent quantum computing. Yep. I, I toy with the idea, but I haven't looked really closely at it. Completely. And do do you have a sense that our fascination with, let's just say, modern technology, current technology, um, disassociates us from history, especially young people, in, in a way that, that they are so captivated by what is available now that they would not... Um, find the interest to look into these original, let's just say, vacuum tube computer or the original transistor-based computer, that, that, that technology just anchors us in the present and future, and we are losing touch with some history. Yes, I think that's true. Uh, I'm sure that none of the very few of the younger generation knows anything about vacuum tube computing. But it's the world they live in, so I don't have any problem with that. Yeah. Uh, some people will study that era just the way they look at ancient Rome and ancient Greece. Mm -hmm. So I don't have any problem with that. The problem I do have is, I'll tell you a, a joke. Um, there were several people, young people talking, and um, he said, you know, they say that I'm using my computer, my handheld computer, and not paying any attention to the people around me, and I don't believe that. I have never seen that happen. And then the next cartoon, it shows there, there was five out of seven people would do that. And he, and the next thing, it shows him on the computer and five other people around, he just ignoring. <laughs> and so that's one thing I'm concerned about, whether, whether it uh, starts to impede our personal interaction. Because, yeah. you know, you, I'm sure you've seen people at the dinner table <laughs> where they're not talking, they're on their phone. Completely. You know... Well, Sorry, Go ahead, okay. no. uh, 
Would it be okay if I told a story that I got a witness of you at the museum? <laughs> so, so Maury volunteered at the museum for 30 years, over 30 years. I started in 88. Yeah. And uh, I think when I left the museum, Maury was at almost 9,000 hours. And I'm, I'm sure he hit over 9,000 hours of service uh, to the museum. And Maury really enjoyed to go through our, our dinosaur hall exhibit and, at the museum, we had a really incredible curator of paleontology, Jack Horner. Uh, and he's really exceptional, and he did a lot of incredible science and research and, and thought about and saw things differently. And in fact, after Maury began at the museum, uh, pretty quickly he ended up going to Mongolia uh, with Jack Horner to look for dinosaurs, and dinosaur eggs was the hope. Uh, and in Maury's volunteer career, he ended up going to five continents uh, with exactly. Jack uh, to look for dinosaurs. Your memory is fantastic. I pay attention, Maury, <laughs> and especially to what you have to say. And um, and uh, I don't think you guys looked for um, dinosaur eggs on Antarctica, but I do love the story when you got off the boat in Antarctica and some woman took a picture and she holds up one hand and two fingers on the other hand and you're like what are you doing she's like seven continents and Maury's like will you take a picture of me and he did the same he's like this is my seventh continent too <laughs> um that was a long uh story to get to this moment that I got a witness with Maury as he was just dis discussing human interactions and, and to witness Maury talk to others is, is really incredible because he has held on to this curiosity inquisitiveness uh, and he's outrageously humble and kind and so I witnessed him wrap up a dinosaur hall tour um, with a group of people and a gentleman hung out a little bit longer to talk to Maury and the gentleman was kind um, maybe slightly arrogant I'm, I'm allowed to say that and uh, he had just gotten back from a trip from Turkey. And so Maury was asking this man all these questions. He was like, what were your favorite experiences in Turkey? Where did you go? Tell me all about it. Because Maury was getting ready to take a trip to Turkey. And Maury's asking all of these questions. And this man is sharing all of these stories. And, and I knew that Maury had been to Turkey three times previous but he never told this gentleman that he had been there so many times. Uh, and it was really impactful for me. Again, I was probably in my mid or early 20s at the time. And I watched Maury talk to this guy and I realized Maury didn't have this concern with um, being the expert or, or having to one up or he just wanted, he just was so curious to bear witness to this other human being and this other human being's experience. Uh, that he listened to this man tell him all about Turkey and Maury was like, oh, thank you so much. Like, I feel more prepared for this trip uh, because of hearing about your experiences. Thank you so much. Uh, and that was so impactful uh, for me to witness uh, that human interaction. I don't know if I ever told you that I, yeah, I don't think I told you that story that I watched all of that happen. Yeah, you teach a lot, Maury. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just overwhelmed by how much you know about me. <laughs> creepy, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, Maury, how many countries do you think you've been to? You know, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I've been thinking about that lately. Uh, I don't know how to do it, but... Uh, as you mentioned, I've been on five continents with Jack Horner. Yep. Uh, I went to four or five while I was in the Merchant Marine, 
and uh, I've done a lot of traveling, but I've never kept records. And when my wife passed away, I uh, asked one of the docents if we had an exhibit of, uh, you might remember this, of uh, replicas of the items from found in King Tut's tomb oh, in yeah. Egypt. That was before right, I started yeah. working there, but I remember that exhibit. And yep. uh, so I asked her, do you want to go see the real thing? Uh, she claims she immediately said, yes, I feel she delayed a long time. <laughs> Is this Bobby? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and what I was talking about, for the first time ever, Egypt had let one of its artifacts out and it was in Philadelphia. So we went there on a trip, and things went well. So uh, we traveled for a few years, and before she passed away of dementia, she wrote a several-page document listing the date and the company that uh, we were with, the countries they visited, and uh, I counted them on this paper, and we were 33 countries together. Oh, my goodness. And it, it, 33 countries, and I think it was like seven years or something. Very it was a, short it was a period short amount of time. Of time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was incredible. Uh, Maury and Bobby would come back from these incredible adventures and all over. Uh, and then they would do presentations locally uh, about uh, where they had traveled to. Uh, Maury, is it okay if I share one more travel story? You betcha. Yes. So when Maury turned 94, he, got, he had the itch to travel, and but he was kind of unsure. You know, he's like, I'm 94. Should I travel by myself? I want to see the different wonders of the world. And he'd seen a couple of them at that point. And so he really wanted to go to Cambodia to see Angkor Wat. He, he hadn't seen Angkor Wat yet, and he really wanted to do this trip. And, you know, I, I had known Maury uh, for a number of years at this point, and, and I was, like, all for it. I'm like, Maury, full send, go for it, you know? Like, <laughs> and, uh, and so he booked his trip, and he planned it. And I was fortunate enough to drive uh, Maury to the airport for that particular trip. So we're cruising out in the truck, you know, and we're hanging out. And, and I had never heard Maury have an inclination of, of um, trepidation or a negative thought. You know, Maury's an incredibly positive and person. And we were driving out there, and, and all of a sudden, Maury goes, well, we'll see if this is a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I don't know if I should travel the world at 94 on my own. And I was like, it was just, again, another powerful moment in my life because this is somebody that I love and admire so much who has who has done so much, experienced so much in, in such a beautiful way. Uh, wherever Maury goes, uh, he, he makes friends. And everyone that meets him says, you know, when they grow up, they want to be like Maury. And, and, uh, and it's not because Maury's inherently just uh, a people-pleasing person or seeking that. It's, it's because uh, of his humble spirit and that, uh, that never-ending curiosity. And so I realized that this person that I love and admire who was getting ready to travel to Cambodia, which would be a big trip for me to go on, uh, I realized that he didn't, 
he did not experience fear or uncertainties, uh, that he experienced those as well, uh, but that he didn't let them uh, control his own driver's seat. Uh, and so he planned this great adventure uh, and he went on it. And, you know, I was, I mean, I was a little nervous, but I was like, it's, it's worth, it's worth the risk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so Maury traveled uh, to Cambodia and he, and he had the chance to go stand and see Angkor Wat in person. Uh, and then he came back from that trip and he told me all about all the friends that he made along the way. And it's kind of, it's the energy that Maury gives out. I swear these, these incredible human beings are just drawn to him and, and they help him along his journey. And, and then they're, they're vastly helped along in their own journeys, uh, just getting to, to be with him. Uh, you remember that Maury? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Completely. Do you remember your Anchor Watt trip, though? Yeah. 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 I do, now that you mention it. I hadn't thought about it in a long time. It, a lot has happened since then. And uh, one of the things I particularly remember that uh, the, uh, the main section uh, is merely a tomb for the emperors. Yeah. And uh, they have a, a, another one almost uh, a temple like a uh, column where you can go over and go up look out this little window over to anchor Wat. yeah i like i did that that was fun it's incredible but uh, i hadn't thought about anchor Wat for years yeah <laughs> for sure you know yeah um i just said wow <laughs> <laughs> completely <laughs> completely uh so, Maury, before we sat down for this, you know, I had the chance to ask some of my friends if they had the chance to ask you any questions. Mm -hmm. What would they ask? Um, you know, I'm I'm 37 years old, and uh, I've had some tremendously hard life experiences, and I think about I think about existing as a human for 99 years here, and and it's it's beyond my comprehension. Honestly, it's absolutely incredible. And when I asked uh, some of my friends uh, what they would want to ask you, a lot of them are curious in this uh, in this life. What has helped you uh, stay curious and engaged in life and having fun? Because you do have a lot of fun in your life. Um, what are some things that you have done navigating that? Having fun? Yeah. Uh It's hard for me to think of anything that I did that wasn't fun. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> and uh, even on some of my fun trips, they weren't all completely fun. Yep. For example, the time my uh, wife and I went to Paris. Yeah. You're familiar with that story? Yes. I, and uh, in fact, let me tell you the story. Perfect. Uh, for a business, uh, I was uh, at one time responsible for networking all the offices of all the phone companies. And I'm not talking about the switching and talking. The I'm talking about the back office uh, operations, which, of course, just like any other office, they have a lot of. And I was responsible. Uh, for each of the company's software, 
um, I was officially in charge of all that. And uh, networking, a worldwide networking organization was having an international conference in Paris. And I thought, oh, uh, oh, and they invited me to be a keynote speaker. So uh, I decided that would be fun. And uh, here's a chance for me to take my wife on a business trip. And uh, both cost us an arm and a leg. So uh, we made the arrangements. But I made the arrangements, and uh, the convention hotel was full. So I had to find a little bed and breakfast a uh, few blocks away. In fact, I was a few blocks from the Arc de Triomphe. And so we flew over a day or two early so I could find how to get to the convention center. So uh, I went down from my hotel one morning and uh, we went together to see where the subway was, where stations were. We found that we could get to the convention hotel very easily. I didn't even need a map. So the next day is the conference day. So I get up and go to the uh, station. And halfway there, they kicked me off the plane. The rail, the subway had gone on strike. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone had to get off, ah, and I had to find my way to the convention center, but I did make it. It was really not a problem. and gave my keynote address. So it lasted about five days, and on the last day, um, I was, we had our closing remarks. I uh, got on the subway, went back to my room, and my wife had the window open. She was a smoker. She had the window open. And as we sat there talking about where should we go for dinner, there was a huge explosion. If the window had not been open, we would have been severely hurt with the flying glass. Wow. And I look out, and the cars are all flipped in the air and smashed. A bill, uh, uh, there was a, a store across the street. It was destroyed, uh, just terrible. So uh, then uh, the fire truck and the police were, came. I turned on the television, and I could see on the television exactly what was happening outside my window. <laughs> I went downstairs. They were using our lobby as a triage for the dead oh. and wounded. And we discovered that what had happened is that there was a terrorist uh, who, uh, anti-Semitic terrorist, who had taken, uh, there was a synagogue across the street, and he had left a motorcycle along the side of the street with explosives, timed to go off when the synagogue came out. Was coming out. Well, he yeah. missed, calculated the time, so not too many from the synagogue were destroyed, but there were a number destroyed. You can go to uh, YouTube and uh, ask for the, the bombing on Rue Caperney can find the whole story and okay. pictures. 
but that was pretty traumatic for us. We all, and we had a week left <laughs> of our vacation then, but people were pouring out of the hotel, all their processions and everything pouring out. I told my wife, no, this is going to be the safest, the safest place, place in, town. in Europe right now, probably. So yeah. uh, every day we would go out traveling and come back, and you'd hear tap, 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 tap. The uh, glaciers were replacing all the broken windows on the oh. whole block. Oh, wow, yeah. Goodness. And this is um, in which decade? I think it was 1980. 80, okay. Okay. And Rook, so you're in the 16th era of these small, maybe? Anyway. I was going to make a France joke about how I'm the worst at pronunciation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess not every... I mean, every trip has its ups and downs to, you know, when you visit some new place. But um, it seemed, I mean, to, to, to visit Cambodia at that age in your life, I mean, you have retained an incredible curiosity and sort of thirst for experience that I think, I mean, now that joke in this era is like, ah, if you're, 40 it's over or if you're 50 it's over but to be still traveling on your own in the, your early 90s is I think something that, that people are curious about like how to because sometimes when we look ahead we see nothing but a decline in our mobility in our sort of curiosity and and uh and it's just, it's not, it's not true. It doesn't have to be that, like that. Oh, I think about that. And I honestly, you know, one of the things I think about, you know, when I look ahead and I'm scared about who's not there. One thing I think about is, you know, I met my friend Maury when I was 24, 25, but Maury met me when he was 87 or 88. Like, who are yeah. the best friends that I'm going to make that I don't know about yet? Um, and will they be older or my age or younger? But I definitely think about that when I, uh, am having a moment of struggling or if I'm fearing the future, I think about, well, well, Maury met me and he was 87 or 88 and, um, it's such a valuable relationship and friendship to me. Uh, I can, I hope, uh, to continue to have those sorts of connections throughout my life. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I mean, we have, we have to I mean if to look into the future and not be utterly unhopeful uh, I think you have to concentrate or, or to, 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 to recognize those moments of oh look at the experience that this person has had or chosen to have look at the curiosity and the sort of I don't, just inquisitiveness about things. And I think that is what keeps us looking forward and not anchored in either present or past. Oh, yeah, I agree completely. And I think about, you know, everyone who's had a chance to know Maury uh, is impacted in these ways, which is why everybody says when they grow up, they want to be like Maury. <laughs> and it, is it okay if I share a few of your um, daily 
um, habits, uh, interests. Sure. Yeah. Oh, you bet. Yeah. Awesome. So, you know, I've known Maury for, for, you know, 13 years now. Um, and you know, we've talked about his travel and his inquisitiveness and it, and it also, it happens right here at home. You know, like we spoke about Maury, um, was a volunteer at the museum and an incredibly active, um, volunteer at the museum, had an entire career there and, and learned so much, uh, while he was there and helped teach others. You can see, uh, what a special job it was that every day I got to go in and, and see Maury or work with Maury. But some of the daily habits that he does that are so incredible is, you know, he does Tai Chi or Qigong uh, most mornings. Uh, yes, he, when I, the, uh, be, uh, my legs have become quite weak. And so the Tai Chi, I've had to stop because I need a, uh, a walker. Yeah. to walk, yep. but I do Qigong every uh, morning, and I'm a great believer and run in the uh, theory the, that you have four seasons, so you want to you, you the Qi is different during each of the seasons. For example, when there are four, spring, summer, winter, autumn and winter. And uh, so the chi in summer is just all over. In the winter, it's going right into everything, the sap in the trees and everything. So in the body, you're bringing the chi, the energy into your body. So I every morning, I, I do qigong for, and I've just started the winter and I'm learning now. I've done it for many years, but my memory is such I have to learn it all over again. Yeah. So I'm a great believer in doing the Tai Chi. And uh, one of our fitness instructors is uh, helping us do Tai Chi. Every week has a class doing Tai Chi where you can stand next to a chair and do all of the movements. It's incredible, you know, and, and part of that, I remember, Maury, and I don't know if it was Tai Chi, or, tai Chi or Qigong that you were doing, you talk about in the morning, you would start at the top of your head and you would work your way down and you would um, clear out your veins and your tendons and you would clear out all of this stuff, this energy, you would move through your whole body starting at the top uh, and work your way uh, down, um, just cleaning out all of those parts. And another... Um, there is these really great senior courses in our community. Our, our community is um, pretty incredible in the way that it incorporates seniors. Uh, we have a senior bus system and we have a, um, some senior classes. And, and Maury was an active participant in um, senior pole trekking and senior balance mm -hmm. courses uh, for a number of years. Um, so he would do that uh, physicality uh, as well. Yeah. And uh, I'm still doing a little pole walking around the inside yep. of the springs. Completely. Mm. Completely. But it, it seems like you get out and about town quite regularly still. Yeah. Uh, but as far as going out by myself, the most I could do is go walk around the block with my 
Walker. And we've and we've, we've seen you several times driving. Yes. <laughs> Blair will say, it's Maury, pull her. Then we screech, we make this huge scene. Well, that I'm so glad you said that. You know, um, uh, Travis, my husband, died in 2019. And then uh, half a year after that, we entered a global pandemic, which was um, pretty brutal. And a couple of weeks after that, I wanted to talk to Maury to make, see how he was doing because he had just moved fortunately a couple blocks from me um, but I I couldn't see him in person at the time Uh, and so I called Maury up and I was like so worried and I was like Maury how are you doing and he was like I'm great I just finished a online tour of some museum or gallery in Europe (laughs) you had done like a zoom walkthrough Uh of it uh, and I was like, of course, this is how Maury is navigating this. Like, Maury's just finished a tour. He's probably signed up for a couple courses. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think it's, an, yeah. Uh, it's extraordinarily inspirational um, to hear things like that, to recognize that it's, um, that as long as we maintain our curiosity, we stay alive, I think. And uh, and if we can't go someplace physically, then technology allows us these days to visit virtually. It certainly does. It's it's really uh, a long way from the vacuum tube computer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it truly is. Um, Maury, Uh, is there anything that you would like to um, share? Uh, the only thing I have to share is that I'm just amazed at what you know about me. <laughs> well, you're a very important person in my life, Maury. I have listened very <laughs> intently over these years. Mm-hmm. And I, um, because of the impact you've had on my life, and again, it's just, it's just you being you. It's just you living the way that you are supposed to live this life uh, has been so impactful for me and and witnessing you and it's and you have experienced hard things uh you you lost your wife and you've lost a son uh and and bobby uh you've experienced difficult things and or there's a global pandemic there's something out of our there's these things out of our control and uh you arriving every day and continuing to participate whether it's uh physically or through i mean your ability uh to begin over and over again uh, you're, um, you aren't afraid to be a beginner, which means uh, that you have learned new things continually throughout your life, uh, has been so influential and impactful to me. And, and when I say me, I also speak about everybody who's fortunate to know you. And we live in this funny world uh, that pays attention to, to things that don't necessarily need our attention. And when you agreed to do this podcast, I was just so thrilled uh, because I believe these are the things that we should pay attention to. Uh, and so, yeah, I have a crazy memory <laughs> for remembering your life and the things that you've told me. Did we ever talk about the dream flight? Is that the Washington, D.C. trip? Yes, um, we but, did. Well, well, you and I did. <laughs> and I remember, well, I remember that because I was like, Maury, you should do this. And I think, didn't AJ do the trip right before you? I think AJ was still alive. Uh, he was another one of our incredible volunteers mm. at the Museum of the Rockies. He was a World War II and Vietnam um, vet. 
And so he did that right before. And then Maury did the trip. But I do love this story. So would you mind sharing this one? The one west of D.C.? Yeah, when it was yeah. closed down. Uh, the, uh, <clears throat> there was an organization, I think it was called Big Sky Honor Flights. Yep. And what they did, every once in a while, uh, they would put out a notice to World War II veterans that they were having a flight uh, from Montana to Washington, D.C. And uh, if you wanted, if you were World War II and wanted to join that flight, uh, let them know. So I signed up for one. And the day, oh, the flight was leaving as a chartered plane from Billings. And the day that it was to happen, uh, the government had shut down, so everything was closed. But they said the flight's still on, so I drove to Billings, hopped on the plane. We got there, and um, the experience was incredible at the airport. Uh, as we were getting out at the airport, there were tens of people there greeting us as we got off the plane. And they formed a line, and we had to go down the line uh, shaking hands with everybody. And uh, as I was shaking hands, I see this one guy, and it was John Tester. And I didn't know what to say, so I said, oh, I know you. <laughs> <laughs> and the little kids were shaking hands. So then we had a... It was in the evening then, by then, and then we had a dinner at the hotel, and uh, Danes, and Tester, and uh, Bacchus. Yeah, 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 Max uh, came, yeah. Uh, came and uh, talked to us for dinner, and so the next day the, the bus came and we went all around, and I have a picture uh, a long picture of all of us standing in uh, front of the Lincoln Memorial to have their mm -hmm. picture taken. So it was a fun trip. That's oh, and we were given a, a jacket, yep. and uh, we were told that they wanted us to wear the jacket to show that we were from Montana. <laughs> this is a photograph of one of the World War II memorials in DC in which mm. each pillar representing a state. I don't have a picture of the Montana pillar, but there is one there of Arizona and some others. Um, I think we have a picture of Maury by the Montana pillar uh. from that trip. Uh, Maury, I thought of two more things that I would like to share. And so, um, again, as we discussed, uh, you know, I learned way more about dinosaurs than I ever thought I would know. I mean, uh, they're not my passion, but the ability to witness scientists, uh, and people so passionate, uh, was really incredible. Uh, and, and my favorite, um, paleo story uh from the museum of the rockies is the mary schweitzer 
um, finding soft tissue and a T-Rex. Oh, yes. I, I absolutely, like it just blows my mind. It's, you know, 65 million year old dinosaur T-Rex um, and, and finding soft tissue. Uh, but what I want instead, I would love to spend time on that, but to focus it, another thing that I really admire about Maury is again, we've, we've spoken about this deep curiosity and inquisitiveness and, and, and again, he doesn't stay in the shallow end. He, he, gets all of the books, he listens to the lectures, he signs up for the courses, and he learns in depth. And another thing that I find really remarkable is, is Maury will study all these things, and then, I don't know if it's every year, but a number of times, Maury would also go to, um, like, the Young Earth Conference or the Creationist Conference, and he would just listen. Uh, he, he wouldn't just go to things that he was... Um, uh, teaching or interested in, he would also go to other people's point of views or perspectives, uh, and he'd be gracious and kind, and he would just listen uh, to other people's perspectives. Uh, and I remember him telling me about that, and me being like, "You what?" And uh, just learning about his uh, ability to to walk into different communities and and to listen to them. And and it goes back to it; he didn't have to be at the forefront speaking all of the time. Uh, he would listen to what other people had to say, and I just loved and admired that. Did you go down and see us when we had the plane flight? The what? Billion uh, uh, Auto uh, was part of bringing a group here that had World War II planes, and they would take veterans up in them, so they had this uh, World War II two-cockpit plane by wing, so I signed up and went, and there was a huge crowd of people at the airport to watch all of this, and the pilot would uh, get in in the the front cockpit, and I got in the second, had my picture taken, and I had all the controls there, the same as the pilot oh, did. That's awesome. And he asked me not to touch them. them. <laughs> <laughs> but we then went up and flew all around Gallatin Valley and came back. Wow. And that was fun. Oh, that's so incredible. That was in the past it's, couple of years then, yeah? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. I feel, Blair, that the story that you just told about. Um, being open to and I mean completely open to different perspectives about things Um, it just made me think that like there is no right or righteous perspective this is all human experience and I think a way to get through um, and to keep enjoying life is to be open to the different perspective to learn like well you believe this you live in this way you might eat this way you choose to live in this place you don't choose something like I'm curious why why tell me yeah because um yeah our 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 differences uh, are genuinely what bind us together <laughs> I think and if we start seeking um, only the echo chamber where, you know, what we believe is transmitted back to us by somebody else, then that's, I think, when we stop growing. Yeah. 
And I, so I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. There's a lot of <laughs> lessons here. <laughs> um, Maury, do you remember in 2016, I wrote to Marvel Comics about you? Do you remember that? Some I, what comments? To, uh, Marvel Comics. I wrote a letter to Marvel Comics. Comics. Sorry, that's a difficult thing for me to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, they made the movie Captain America, and he tries to enlist in World War II a lot of times. And so I wrote this letter um, about you to them. Would it be okay if I read that letter? Yes. Okay. Okay, so I wrote this in 2016, and it goes, it's again, you know, I've learned so much from Maury, and, and I think that we have the power to give attention to where we want to give attention, and, and I think um, uh, that we give it to places that we shouldn't always, and it's important to bring it back uh, to these meaningful moments. And so uh, I wrote to Marvel Comics, and so that we're time traveling back to 2016, so, <laughs> and I wrote... Hi, Jeff. My name is Blair Speed, and I'm a volunteer and training coordinator at the Museum of the Rockies in Bozeman, Montana. I got your contact information off of the Marvel Media website. I wanted to reach out to you and share a short story. One of my best friends is, 93 years old, is a 93-year-old volunteer at the museum. His name is Maury Irvin. He has been volunteering here for 28 years, guiding Montana school children through our exhibits. I am not exactly sure how we've become best friends as he is generally pretty reserved and I'm a sassy redhead. He is also 61 years my senior, but I met him seven years ago and he has forever changed my lens to this world. I know so many incredible stories about Maury, from riding the trolleys in San Francisco during the American Prohibition, his time serving as a merchant marine in World War II, his help on the Bell Labs team inventing the transistorized computer, missile defense technology during the Cold War. The list of accolades goes on and on and on and then on some more. But Maury doesn't directly open up to each of these stories, as he is humble and kind and has held on to an enthusiasm for life and inquisitiveness that so many of us lose after childhood. Maury was recently invited to a local middle school to share his stories from World War II. Afterwards, all 80 students in attendance sent over thank you cards. The cards were so detailed, I felt like I was sitting in on the presentation. Over and over again, each card talked about, talked about how Maury attempted to enlist in World War II 27 times. 27 times he was denied and sent home. He just kept coming back. What a story for these eighth grade students to hear. I guess Maury has always been stubbornly optimistic. When I asked Maury about attempting to enlist 27 times, he said, I was naive with a chuckle. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I don't necessarily agree with that statement, as I don't think naivety has anything to do with any actions Maury has taken. I think he has always been determined to work hard and to give back, and I think he has never let anyone withhold an opportunity from him, all the while staying graciously kind and optimistic. When I told my boyfriend, Travis, this story, his immediate response was, Maury is the real-life Captain America. <laughs> We're big Marvel fans in the Speedson household. Maury didn't go through genetic mutation like Captain America, though. He got a job at TWA Airlines, who had lowered their eyesight requirement due to the ongoing war and shortage of personnel. Maury served on their ground crew for eight months with the intention to reapply for enlistment. He was finally accepted into the Merchant Marines, where he went on to serve throughout the duration of World War II, mainly on a boat off of Italy. 
Then he went on to help invent the transistorized computer with his Bell Labs team, which completely changed flight operations and bombing capabilities during war. There are so many more great stories here of using bed mattresses to plug up holes in the ship, or the time a captain crushed an entire boat into the harbor as he was distracted watching 12 nurses, <laughs> or his girlfriend Rosa he met in Pompeii when they were the only two people in the forgotten city, and, or when Maury's ship was the next in line to be destroyed by German fighter pilots. Maury looked up and watched them run out of ammunition. From that moment on, he... From that moment on, he swore to write down a bucket list and fulfill his bucket list in his lifetime. And let me tell you, it's been one hell of a bucket list. He recently went back to Italy and climbed Mount Vesuvius at the age of 92. But what I really wanted to share was Maury's enlistment story with Marvel. I just thought in a time when the news can make money sharing the worst sides of people's actions, it's important to share the stories of the great ones. Maury is certainly one of the great ones. I hope you have enjoyed this story and the similarities between Maury's World War II enlistment and the Captain America story. With joy and gratitude, Blair. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I never heard back from them, but that's fitting. <laughs> <laughs> it's more for us. It's a Hollywood studio for you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm very mm. grateful for you, Maury. <laughs> uh, so impressed with that. All you know and been saying. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Of course. Of course. Mm. <laughs> Thanks, Blair. Of course. Wow. <sighs> That's quite a journey. It's, uh, it's an incredible journey. Yeah. Thank you, Maury. Thank you so much, Maury. My pleasure. <laughs> Thank you both so much. Oh, you're welcome. Mm -hmm. And uh, happy birthday. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I'm going to go check on some meat that's smoking. Because <laughs> I'm nervous. <laughs> And Charlotte stayed quiet. I know. It's incredible. She Normally we put Charlotte in the garage because, uh, you know, someone walks by and Hound Dog's going to howl. Uh, mm. But Charlotte loves Maury so much, uh, we couldn't keep yeah. him apart. <laughs> and thankfully the uh, the brown pants man didn't show up. <laughs> exactly. Um, to deliver a package. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you once again. It was Thank you for having so me. I'm a little overwhelmed by the last few minutes. Me too. <laughs> it's just allergies. It's okay. <laughs> well, I love and appreciate you a lot, Maury. Mm -hmm. Here's to a couple more good years. Yeah. <laughs>